you, Pastor Mike, for your prayer, and thank you, Pastor Paul, for leading us in worship this morning. Very much appreciated. So, I wrote in the, uh, if you happen to see the Connect newsletter, I, I wrote this week um, this question, why bulls and goats? I happen to love animals in general. My father uh, grew up on a farm in Iowa in the Midwest uh, of the United States, and growing up as a child, though his parents had sold the farm long before I came along, uh, there was a friendly relationship with the people who had bought it, my, and my grandparents still lived in the, it's hard to say, the town, the city of, of Victor, Iowa. They actually have t-shirts that say, yes, there is a Victor, Iowa. Um, when, you, when you go there, you come to the, the one stop sign, and then you kind of see the whole city from there. But, uh, but they had moved there, and we would stay there. We'd go on these uh, vacations from time to time with the family. Uh, my father being a uh, Bible college professor and, um, and an associate pastor didn't have, um, uh, we didn't fly and go to extravagant uh, vacations or anything like that. But uh, because he was a professor, he would have some time off in the summer. And so we would pack up in the car. We would just jam ourselves and all our stuff into that Chevy Caprice Classic. And we would drive. And we would just go across the states and go visit the family in other places. And so we were in Florida and uh, drove, up, drove up to uh, Iowa to visit Grandma and Grandpa. I'd go to Montana to visit the other Grandma and Grandpa. Down to Arizona to visit Uncle and Aunt down there. We just did a big old giant loop around the country. And uh, it was great family experience. But the highlight for me was we would go out and visit the farm where my dad grew up. And we would go, and my thing was I would climb the silos. You're familiar with the farm silos, big giant steel tubes that stick up way up in the air, very, very tall. I would climb to the very top of the silo and stand there and survey the world from that high point. Loved it. I've always loved heights. But... I would climb into the pig pen. I'd walk into the cow barn. I would do everything I could to absorb the farm life that my dad had experienced growing up. And I always loved the animals. I enjoyed when my dad taught me how to really get a, a reaction from the hogs, from the pigs. He said, just walk up to one of those and just like grab it on the back of its neck. Just give it a little squeeze on the back of its neck. Oh my goodness. The squealing, the reaction <laughs> that, that took place, and it was contagious through the rest of the, the pigs. It was a great, it was a highlight. I've always enjoyed, I've always loved animals. We had cats when I was young, which almost killed me because I have asthma and I'm allergic to cats. Uh, but we had dogs, and uh, thankfully I don't have any problem with dogs, so I still have one of those today. Uh, but I've just always loved the animals. And so it strikes me, as I'm sure it did many people, and has ever, ever since, that the sacrifice of animals was a very sad thing. And we've been looking at the book of Leviticus, and we have been looking at the feast days and the ceremonies and the sacrifices and that sort of thing. And again and again, we see animals, especially ones that were probably near and dear to some people's hearts, because when there was that Passover lamb, that little one-year-old, perfect little lamb that had to be sacrificed. And then the other sacrifices that, that took place daily in the temple, the regular sacrifices that people, individuals, and families would bring to, to atone for sin, and all of these things, that had to be a heartbreaking event over and over and over again. I know it would have been for me. 
Well, when it comes to the New Testament, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so, why did they do all of that? Why were there so many bulls and goats and lambs being sacrificed? If it didn't take away sin, why is it so important? And in fact, we see now, as we come through this, this study in, in the book, in the chapter 23 of Leviticus, we have gone through the, the high feast days, one after the other, and now we come to the Day of Atonement. And on this day, there are more animals sacrificed than on most of the other days, perhaps probably all of them. And it is considered to be an extremely important day for the people of Israel. In fact, this is one of the two highest holy days, this and the Passover, both focused on the sacrifice of innocent animals. So we look at this with, I guess, some curiosity, perhaps some confusion as to why this should take place. And I would put to you today that there was a lesson to be learned in it, that it was something that was foreshadowing a critical moment in history. It was teaching not only the people of Israel, them especially because they were the vehicles of God's revelation to the rest of the world, but for all of us, it was teaching a lesson, a critical principle of substitutionary atonement. That's those songs that we sang today. Now, the word atonement means to cover. And the implications, the understanding of atonement is that, that it's, it's a covering up of an offense. It's something that reconciles an offender to the one who has been offended. It's, it's the, it's the band-aid. It's the, it's the healing balm. It's, it's that thing that, that deals with an open wound, that wound being particularly an offense. And so the Day of Atonement is significant in its emphasis and its focus on this covering. And we see that as we come to Leviticus chapter 23, verses 26 through 32. I want to uh, just read these verses, and then, and then we'll comment further. So Leviticus, if you've got your copy of Scripture, Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 32, says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement, and it shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves, or you may have in your translation, humble yourselves, and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted or humbled on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. The Word of God Himself promising destruction. Verse 31, you shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath. Remember the word Sabbath means rest? It shall be for you a Sabbath of solemn rest. 
and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, that's considered the beginning of the next day. So beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Now, just a little bit of textual observation here. I'm going to call upon you to be students, all right? Take some responsibility for yourself. Look through that passage once again, especially if you have access to all of the verses at once in front of you, whether it's on your device or a hard copy. But what are the concepts that you see, or the commands, the parts of commands that you see repeated the most in this passage? There are certain words or commands that seem to be emphasized again and again. Okay, Pastor Paul's got one. Afflicting, right? Humbling, right? We're going to talk about what that means. What else do you see that's repeated? Setting it, say it real loud. Be bold. Sorry? Don't do any work. Thank you, Tanta. Anything else? Sorry? Holy, okay. Yes. Be a very special day and time. Anything else? Sorry? Sabbath. Sabbath, that's right. The rest, yep, absolutely. Very good. Well, those are, those are the biggest things. It's the humbling of oneself and the absolute rest, and the, you see that they are repeated. It's, it's kind of like, could God possibly say this any more different ways to get the point across, that this is to be a very holy, very special day set apart from all other days, and that people are to humble themselves before God, that they are to afflict themselves in some way, and that they are to absolutely rest. Well, so first of all, you see that the afflicting of oneself, the humbling of oneself must not be an act of works, right? There, there are many who in uh, Catholic tradition and others who seem to think that to humble themselves before God, they have to do all kinds of things that will impress God with how much they will abuse themselves or, or the, th the lengths to which they will go to show their sincerity, their piety, and so on and so forth. That clearly is not what's meant. Now, this word that you see there, that is afflict yourself or humble yourself, depending on how that's translated, this is the word that is consistently understood or used uh, throughout the, the Hebrew context of the Old Testament to refer to mostly fasting. It could have some slightly broader application. It was basically meant to abstain from the normal comforts of life for a time. Food would be the most, the most obvious and most common, most consistent abstinence. There might be other treats or something like that that you would give up during this time. But it's particularly the, the connotation is mostly fasting. So it was a day of fasting and it was always understood that when there was fasting, one of the purposes of fasting was to redirect your energy to prayer. And as we saw before, as we looked at the sacrificial system, we've seen the Day of Atonement already back in chapter 16 of Leviticus, and we went through all of the steps that were taking place. And throughout all of those things, you had the people assembled. It does say it's a holy convocation, right? So the people were to come together. 
And the people were observing, not doing, they were observing all that the high priest was doing for them, and they were praying, particularly when the priest went into the holy place and from there into the holy of holies. And when the priest was taking in incense and would, would, would light and refresh the incense on that smaller altar, if you recall from, from Exodus and, and everything, we, we went through all of the furnishings and everything in the, in the temple uh, and as we went from Exodus into Leviticus. And we looked at the furnishings. There's that smaller square altar that's right in front of the big heavy curtain of separation that divided the inner sanctuary between the holy place where the other legitimate priests would serve. There was the menorah there, you know, the candles, uh, uh, and there was the table with the showbread, the daily bread, and there was this, this smaller altar with its little four horns on the corners that was always burning this proprietary blend of incense that God forbade anyone else from ever using because it was very specifically to be for, used in the temple. And that incense was a representation of, it was a, a visual illustration of the prayers of the people going up before God. And so when the priest went in, he took some of the incense and went through the veil into the Holy of Holies. The people outside were all praying. And they're praying particularly prayers of repentance because they've been leading up to this. If you recall, the, in the last message, we talked about the, the, the Feast of Trumpets when there was the announcement of the beginning of the days of repentance. And, that, and then that was the beginning of the new year. The, and the new year then was the beginning of the count now of 10 days to the day of atonement. And those were considered, those were called different things, but they're called the days of awe. They're called the days of repentance and so on. And the day of atonement is the, is the climax and so this is the time when all of the people are coming before God as a nation, not only as individuals, but as a nation to ask God's forgiveness for their sin, and particularly for the things that maybe haven't been dealt with. Because if they knew that they broke the law in some obvious way, they would have already brought a sin offering for that in the course of the year, in the course of life. But now this day is to say, you know what, we know that there are things we miss, that's still true for us today, right? There's so many things that we do that we shouldn't do or that we fail to do that we should do that we hardly even think about. We're, we're so polluted in our own hearts and minds with our own sin that sometimes we just don't even see it. And so this was a day to recognize, Lord, we know that we are sinful people in general. And for all those things that haven't been confessed or atoned for, here they are be atoned for today. And so it was a day of, of fasting, and that was the affliction of the humbling, but there was this day of rest as well, that it's emphasized again and again that they were to do nothing. So let's have a look here. We'll just kind of, I want to just draw a few observations about this to summarize it, because I don't want to go through what we did before and describe all of the steps of what took place on the day of atonement, because it's not here in this text. But just by way of a little bit of a refresher, just kind of a summary, the high priest had to make sacrifices for himself first. Well, first he would do the normal high priestly things in the temple that were to happen every day. Then he would have to take off his regular high priestly garments and put on a special plain white linen garment, and then he would have to make sacrifices and take incense and things into the holy place and go through a process of atonement for his own sin. Then he would come out 
take those off, wash, once again, put on the regular, you know, regal-looking high priestly garments and, and go through the process with the selection of the two goats, and one, is a, and one is to be sacrificed to the Lord in the temple, one is to be the scapegoat that takes the guilt of the people away, far away into the wilderness, away from the people, and then he would sacrifice the bull and the goat, and he would wash and change and go back in again and offer atonement for the people in his simple white garments because God isn't impressed, right? He can't wear the regal garments in front of God because when he has to come in and, and offer atonement for himself. So he comes back out. And so this whole process, he washes the priest, changes clothes multiple times, and washes 10 times in the course of his process. And it takes nearly all day for all of this to take place. Well, so here are some observations that I think should become meaningful for us. First of all, we look at the annual day of atonement for Israel, and we see that the high priest, who was chosen by lots from amongst, they had to be those who were descended from Aaron. The rest of the Levites assisted the priests in the temple. They were a dedicated tribe, but those who could actually serve as the priest, particularly as the high priest, had to be in the direct lineage of Aaron, the brother of Moses, the Aaronic priesthood, we call it. And so from amongst those eligible who were of age and qualification and everything like that, lots were cast, basically like, like dice as we understand it, and, and the selection of the one who would serve as the high priest for that year would be chosen. And it was only that one individual who was qualified to enter into the Holy of Holies only on this one day, the Day of Atonement. One person one location, one day per year. They had to be specially qualified and cleansed and offer sacrifices for themselves, etc. Well, we see here, first of all, the high priest chosen by lots, first of all, did all the work because they were the only qualified mediator for the people. This was a day of solemn rest, right? It's emphasized again and again and again, and yet the priest has instructions for all this thing that the high priest is supposed to do on behalf of all the rest of the people, as well as for himself. So the high priest alone did all the work. Everyone else was to be observing, appreciative, praying, resting from their work. Secondly, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies to make atonement for sin, went into that special, unique chamber. That was where the Ark of the Covenant was, right? And nothing else. But on that lid on the Ark of the Covenant, you remember you have the, the big cherubim, the big, the big angels with the covering wings. And in the middle of that space, on, on top of that lid, was considered the mercy seat. And that was the place where God to, chose to demonstrate his, his unique, concentrated presence he created a sense of location, though he is omnipresent. He created a sense of location, a focal point there on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies. And so it was understood by the people that to enter that place was to enter in a more powerful way than, than ever at any other time in history, the presence of God. Only, only Adam and Moses ever had such close encounters. And so he entered in the Holy of Holies to make atonement for sin, but he had to offer blood sacrifices to atone for his own sin. 
So he had to go in with blood of an animal, not his own, not his own blood, but an animal that was a substitution. The animal's blood was brought in as a covering for the priest. There was a goat and there was a bull bull. And then you have this priest who had to uh, make atonement for every other part of the, ta- the tabernacle. They, they did that after, make atonement for themselves, put on the priestly garments, and then they took the blood of the bull and the goat, and they blended them together after what was offered at the, there in the Holy of Holies, and then it went on everything. All the pieces of furniture and the main altar outside, all the whole tabernacle, all the furnishings were atoned on this day. They were cleansed by blood for the whole year, especially on this day. And then they made atonement for the people. And then came out and sent the scapegoat away, carrying the guilt of the people far from them. So all of these things that this high priest did was to satisfy the holy righteousness of God as a mediator for the people, acknowledging sinfulness, acknowledging separation between them and God because of their sin, and yet demonstrating that there is a way that doesn't require everyone giving their own life because everyone is sinful and therefore everyone deserves to die, but that there's a way for their sin to be covered for by a substitution. And even the scapegoat, that interesting bit of drama where, where this scarlet cord is, is tied around the head or the horns of the, of the scapegoat, and it's taken far out into the wilderness. Even the, What an interesting illustration. But even that idea, God was foreshadowing the removal of the guilt of sin far, far away from the repentant on the day that atonement is made. What a beautiful image. Well, what about the people? Well, the people, as we said, simply gathered to observe the atoning work of the high priest. And they humbled themselves in repentance by fasting and praying. And thirdly, and most importantly, they rested. They did absolutely no work. Now, what's to be learned from that? Well, let's move on and we'll loop back to it. Because the thing is, there is a day of atonement in the New Testament era as well. But it's a once-for-all day of atonement. It's not one that takes place year after year. There's one. It's already taken place. It's already passed. But what can we observe about this? Well, once again, let's look at the high priest. In this case, it's Jesus. Not chosen by lots, not different from year to year. Now, of course, uh, at the time that Jesus came on the scene, these things were still being carried out in the temple. This was still happening year after year, and so that's why you see reference in the Gospels uh, where it talks about you know, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And talk about, you know, uh, Annas, his, his, I think it was his father-in-law, who had been the high priest before and so on. Okay? They were of the family of Aaron and so on. And so they were the high priestly group of people. But there was one who was chosen each year who served as the high priest for that year. But we're introduced in the New Testament to a new high priest, a high priest who introduces a new covenant that changes what needs to be done. It changes the rules, but it still satisfies all of God's demands, and it fulfills really all that was taking place 
before. None of that was wasted. It was all purposeful. It was all meaningful. It was all pointing forward to the one who would satisfy all of God's demands once for all, the great high priest, Jesus. So let's consider those, those dot points that we looked at before for the high priest for the Old Testament uh, people of Israel. But now we see in the once for all day of atonement for new believers, the high priest Jesus did all the work. He's the only qualified mediator. Right? When Jesus offered himself his own blood for the sacrifice. Remember John the Baptist recognizing when he came on the scene? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus making the claim, I myself am the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What is all of this about? He did all the work when he went to the cross. He entered the heavenly holy of holies to make atonement for sins. And we'll see in a moment, we'll read the passages in Hebrews that describe these things, that draw the, the contrast between the physical, temporal version of things that Israel built by God's instructions, the whole tabernacle and the temple and all the furnishings and all of those things. And Hebrews tells us that those were all just shadows of the real thing in heaven. And so when Jesus brings an atoning blood sacrifice to offer before holy God the Father for sin. It's His own blood that He brings. And he, took, and he took it into the Holy of Holies in heaven, presented His own sacrifice to the Lord. He had no need to atone for any sins of His own. He had already lived a perfect life. And, and even as Pastor Mike was, was demonstrating for us in his message last week, Jesus illustrated the perfect human life, absolute obedience to God the Father throughout his whole life in every matter. So he was the perfect lamb, which was the significance of the people offering up perfect lambs, unflawed lambs only were qualified to be sacrificed before. He himself was the perfect lamb. He had no need to atone for his own sins. He then destroyed the veil of separation between sinful people and God. We just read that in our portion of Scripture reading this morning, how at the moment of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that veil in the temple was torn in two. And when we look at the accounts from the, the Gospels, we pick up sometimes a little bit more detail in one than another, but it was clearly observed by the priests who were there, because this was the Passover, so they were active in the temple, and they saw that this heavy veil and if you recall when we talked about it, it was really thick, heavily, densely woven veil. It, it, it almost impenetrable even by cutting. I mean, there just was no way through this veil. And it was huge and tall and hung up in the separ as a separation between the holy place and the holy of holies. This massive curtain, stronger than probably our walls, it was ripped from top to bottom. No human being could reach the top. No earthquake alone could have caused this to tear. All the rest of the temple could have fallen down around it, and this curtain would have been intact. But strangely, the moment that Christ died, it was torn in half from top to bottom. 
it's a, it's a detail that we can pass over so easily as we read the account, but it was hugely significant. And the Apostle Paul talks about it later in his epistles as well. So this separation, this thing that was so terrifying for even the high priest to, to pass through just once a year after they had cleansed themselves and put on the proper clothing and offered a sacrifice and come with blood and with incense and, and per instructions by God had bells sewn around the bottom hem of their, of their garment so that people could hear him moving around inside there just to make sure he was still alive, that he hadn't been struck down and a cord tied around his ankle in case he did get struck down so they could pull him out because nobody would dare go in to get him. They would be struck down. It would be an impossible scenario. So the terrifying nature of a, uh, the, the, the aspect of, of approaching holy God for an imperfect person, now this separating barrier, this veil is just torn in two. The separation between holy God and sinful man is, is removed by God Himself, apparently. And so He made atonement for all the people, all who accept His offering for them. His atonement, even as we sang in Jesus, Thy blood and righteousness, I think is quite clear in Scripture. His atonement was sufficient to cover all humanity. His sacrifice, you cannot limit the value of Christ's sacrifice, but it's only effective for those who accept that sacrifice on their behalf. Those who say, yes, I accept that as the sacrifice being offered for me, as the substitution for me. You have to embrace that sacrifice for you. And just as that scapegoat carried away the guilt of sin for the people far, far away, Jesus removes the guilt for sin for all who believe. Just as we've seen in recent messages, I've looked at the beautiful statement in Romans chapter 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The guilt is taken away. God tells us that, that our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. Well, if you start flying or traveling in, to the east, at what point do you start traveling west? Never happens, right? It's that far away. It's never attainable, right? It's, it's impossible to reach. So it's gone. The guilt of sin is gone once it is atoned for by Jesus Christ. So now let's look at these key passages in the New Testament. Again, Hebrews and, and Leviticus, I've said before, you kind of have to study the both books together to really understand the significance of both. Okay? So I'm going to read some significant portions of Hebrews. I hope you will Find your copy and read along with me. Uh, I believe Glenn is popping it up on the screen as well. He'll um, try to have that all up there with us. But we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9 first. Obviously, I won't fully expound all of these passages. We're just going to highlight key statements here. But if, you're, if your thinking cap is on, you're going to understand the significance of the things that are being said here, having made the observations we have already in the Old Testament text. So, Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14, says, When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, right, the one that's in heaven, 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The sacrifice of Jesus of his own blood as that final atonement can remove the guilt of sin. That's what that last verse said. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We'll jump down just a little bit in that chapter. I love the book of Hebrews, by the way. It's well worth studying again. Pastor Mike's preached in it. Uh, It's just a wonderful book. But we can't do all of that today. So, uh, verses 24 through 28, Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. There's the representation, the mediation, substitution. Appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed, now get this because this is sobering and if you have not dealt with this yet, take warning. It says in verse 27, it is appointed for a man to die once. This is one of those universal things, right? We say it jokingly, right? Two absolutely guaranteed things in life, death and taxes, right? Well, we can laugh at the taxes part, maybe, (laughs) but death, there are a lot of people who live in denial of the reality that any moment they could pass over into the next life. And they have not dealt with the consequences of that possibility. They've not dealt with the reality that they will be, according to God's Word, one place or another. It says, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes what? Judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting Him. So those who have appropriated Christ's sacrifice for themselves, those who have said, yes, I am happy for that to be the sacrifice offered on my behalf. I accept that atoning offering as my substitution. Those Those of us in that status, we are the ones who are waiting for Him. We are the ones who will be saved. That's why we use that terminology. We will not face judgment from God. Well, we'll face the judgment, but we'll be declared innocent, not guilty, and pass right on to the presence of God. There's a distinction. We all die. We all face the throne but some will face God's wrath and judgment. Others will be declared His children and welcomed home. 
Continuing on to chapter 10, Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 14, okay? Big long one here, but it's, I think it's really interesting if you're paying attention. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, again, it's referring to this whole system that we're studying in Leviticus, okay? just the shadow of the good things to come, it was all foreshadowing of Christ's work. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's always a temporary fix, again and again and again. It didn't really change the, the status of the person for good in their relationship to God. Verse 2, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, if it was effective, if blood and goats could be effective on behalf of people as a permanent solution, well, then why do they keep doing it every year, right? So they would not, why wouldn't they have stopped doing that? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. No, no more guilt. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. Yes, the, that sad moment of laying your, your hand on the head of that innocent animal that maybe you've grown some affection for even, and there's nothing wrong with that animal. It's perfect. It's beautiful. It's sweet. It's innocent. Putting your hand on that animal so as to say, this animal is taking my guilt, I'm transferring it to the head of this animal, my guilt is on this animal, and then killing it, it says right here the purpose of that. Hebrews 10.3, in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's just a covering, just a temporary covering of that. Consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, talking to the Father, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. All of that foreshadowing, all of those prophecies, that whole sacrificial system pointing to this moment when Christ offers himself for atonement. Verse 8 when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. You see, God didn't ask for all those animals to be sacrificed for his pleasure, God wasn't those, one of those kind of you know, capricious, demanding, false gods that people believe in who think that they're always, that, they, that somehow they desire blood. God never took pleasure in those things. They were to illustrate for the people the seriousness and the consequences of sin and to point forward for this idea of a substitutionary atonement that can deal with sin. And Jesus being the fulfillment of that. So, verse 10 of chapter 10, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest 
stands daily at His service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. His work complete, one day of atonement, the high priest Jesus came and offered the perfect sacrifice himself that made atonement that can cover all sin, and it satisfies the Father so much that his work is done, and he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He never has to do that again. No other sacrifice needs to be made. The righteousness of God, the justice of God has been satisfied. So what about the people? What about the people today? We look at the high priest and the people of the Old Testament era on the Day of Atonement. We, we've looked at the high priest today, Jesus. Well, what about the people? What about us? What about other people? What's our role? Well, first we must recognize Jesus as the only qualified mediator before God. Just as the people of Israel let that one high priest chosen by lots go in on their behalf, we must accept Jesus as the only qualified mediator between sinful people and God. We must humble ourselves in repentance for our own sins, just as the people humbled themselves on that day to recognize their sin, to say, God, we know that we offend you. We are asking you to forgive us. But finally, and most importantly, just as it was stressed the most of all points in our passage in Leviticus chapter 23, again and again, you shall do what? No work. You must rest. No work. Rest. No work. Rest. And God was so insistent upon that. Why was it so important that God threatened to destroy a person if they dared to work on the Day of Atonement? Because critical to the principle of atonement is that the offender can do nothing to deal with their own sin. So today, Jesus, having offered the sacrifice, He did all the work. What's our role? Rest. Do nothing to try to achieve your own atonement, your own forgiveness, your own access to heaven. This is the whole point to recognize you can't do it. You can't even contribute. I am infected by sin. I, just as the, even the high priest had to make sacrifices for himself, I could never perfect myself. There has to be sacrifice for me. I, so, again, said this before, even if I were to perfect myself from this day forward, it wouldn't account for my history of sin. It wouldn't deal with that. It wouldn't erase it. So there's nothing I can do for myself because I'm not qualified. I, I, I can't offer myself as a perfect spotless sacrifice because I'm not perfect and spotless. And, and you have all the other religious systems of the world. This is the big distinguishing thing. Why we make a big deal about not being politically correct and saying that, you know, it's all works out the same in the end. No, it doesn't. 
This is not the same as any other religion because every other religion relies on the efforts of the individual to somehow try to pull themselves up, improve themselves, improve their situation, do something to earn favor, to, to do something. For, and it's just hopeful and yet hopeless. And it's all about the individual's effort. And here's the distinguishing thing. Atonement for sin, the removal of guilt, relies upon you recognizing that you can't do any of it for yourself. It relies upon you resting entirely upon the work of the high priest, the one perfect high priest who entered in the Holy of Holies in heaven on your behalf to offer up the perfect sacrifice once for all, his own blood. Jesus being God and man, uniquely qualified to represent us. Only God can offer a perfect holy sacrifice that would be acceptable for the sin of all people, and only an actual person can offer a sacrifice that is equal and appropriate for persons, because people and sheep are not the same. So Jesus coming as God-man, uniquely qualified, he is, in fact, the only way. He was right when he said, I myself am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He was the atoning sacrifice. He was the high priest at the same time. And only he can and has offered perfect atonement that can remove the guilt of sin from the individual once for all. So if you have already accepted this sacrifice on your behalf, you have so much to be grateful for. How then should we live? Ask yourself. I have to ask myself this over and over again. Am I living in a way that reflects the sacrifice that's been offered for me? Am I living in a way that reflects, reflects the grace extended to me? If you haven't appropriated that sacrifice for yourself, if you have not accepted what Jesus offered for atonement for you, it is appointed for you to die once and after that is judgment. The only way to escape that judgment is to stand before the throne guiltless. The only way to be guiltless is for your sin to be atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The only way to gain that status is to rest in His sacrifice, is to try to do nothing to contribute to your salvation, to humble yourself, to afflict your own self-image to the point that you recognize that you will never be good enough. And so you must give it up. You must say, I need your, I need your atoning sacrifice, Jesus. I'm thankful that you went in to the Holy of Holies in heaven on my behalf and offered your own blood, and I'm relying upon that. It's resting, not trying to contribute. Two verses. 1 Timothy 2, 5 sums it up. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, the ultimate, perfect mediator, that high priest who went in for, for us on our behalf. 1 John 1, verse 9, Pastor Mike already quoted it this morning. 
if we confess our sins, He is faithful. That means that word is reliable. You can completely count on Him. He is faithful and just. And that is, those two words are there for a reason. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that removal of guilt. So He's faithful. In other words, He can be relied upon because He made the promise. He said, if you put your trust in the work of my Son, Jesus Christ, I will forgive you. I will give you eternal life. He is just in that He is not violating His own holiness because Jesus' atoning sacrifice was sufficient. It was satisfying. It was complete. Nothing else is needed. So He will forgive you, and He has every right to forgive you if you confess your sins, and He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, that takes place at the time of faith for salvation, but praise God, it continues to be in effect for those of us who have accepted Christ. That, that sacrifice continues to cover our sin. It continues to cover our faults, because no, we have not reached perfection. We have not attained for ourselves holiness in our daily lives. But praise God, because of the sacrifice of Christ, it continues to cover us. All God asks of us is for salvation and for sanctification afterwards is to keep acknowledging our guilt, keep acknowledging our helplessness to fix ourselves. Just keep acknowledging that it's what Christ did for us that gives us a right to call Him Father, that gives us a certainty of hope, not just a wishing hope, but a certain hope that one day we'll be received by Him, we'll be accepted with open arms, no, no guilting, no shaming, but open arms. Scripture tells us that precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of His saints. So yes, we're all pointed to die some will face a terrifying judgment, but those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, your death will be a precious thing to God because He will be welcoming you home. It'll be like a child who's been away for a long time coming back and gets to throw his arms around you in person. We get to spend forever in the presence of our loving Heavenly Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I urge everyone, if you, have not, if you have not humbled yourself to the point of, of trusting and resting entirely in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, don't let another day go by. I mean, I'm just, so frequently I hear of, of cases of people whose lives just change in an instant or are ended in an instant. And nobody really gets up in the morning and thinks, you know, today's the day I'm going to die. I better take care of business today, this morning. You don't know. But Scripture guarantees it will happen sooner or later. And I don't say that to scare anybody into Christianity or anything like that. These are realities that must be faced. Wise up. Don't waste another day. Don't waste another hour. You don't need a priest today to do things for you. All you have to do is talk to God. Approach Him through Jesus Christ. He hears you, and He promises to receive you if you confess your sin 
Acknowledge your guilt before him and simply accept by faith the atoning work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Accept his forgiveness. Accept the eternal life that he promises. Stop trying to do things for yourself. That's pride, that's arrogance, that's unacceptable to God. You just have to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if you have done that, again, I invite you to join me in this continuing process of sanctification, trying to live in a way that's more consistent with the gift of God, His gracious gift of forgiveness. No, we're not perfected by our salvation, not yet. But we should be in a process of reflecting more and more our Savior's character. So let's not give up. Keep going to Him, confessing those sins, being aware of those failings, and asking Him to continue to strengthen us by His Spirit and by His Word so that we can live in a way that reflects His goodness, His grace, His righteousness, that others might be pointed toward Him, that they too can receive His grace and forgiveness. Let's point to God with our lives. Let's pray. Father, we just, we are so grateful. These truths are really bigger than we can grasp, bigger than we can get our heads around or that we can maybe more importantly get our emotions around, our real deep thoughts. But I pray that you would, by your Spirit and the power of your Word, drive them home to each of us, that we would, just those of us who know you who are your children, that we would be so much more grateful than we are on a daily basis. I need this. I need you to remind me regularly, prompt me by your Spirit to remember that I'm living a redeemed life, a life that has been covered by a great sacrifice. Help me to live in a way that is more consistent with that reality. And for anyone who hears this message who has not yet accepted the atoning work of Jesus Christ on their behalf, I pray that you would stress, impress upon them today the need to do so, the need to get out of the way, to rest, to try not to contribute to the work that belongs only to the high priest on their behalf. Help them to receive your gift of grace through your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Well, what a great song to end with. This is one of my favorite songs of all time. It's before the throne of God above because it reminds us that our great high priest